This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 641, Rick Honeycutt, pitcher for the Oakland Athletics, allegedly. We will get to Rick in just a moment, but first we do have some follow-up from previous episode. We got a very nice email from Andrew, friend of the show and the artist formerly known as At Painted Cap. He had a couple notes about the Keith Hernandez episode we wanted to make sure we shared with everyone. First, that Keith would have been coached by John Nochi, father of Paul Nochi, who we covered in card number 542 when he was at the College of San Mateo. But more importantly, he said, I want to nominate Keith's 1984 Tops card as the most prominent and square on buttocks shot in the entire Tops canon, outflanking even the 1982 Tony Gwynn card. David, I'm pulling up the 1984 Keith Hernandez Tops card onto the Jumbotron right here. I mean, this is practically indecent. This is a, you can see half of Keith Hernandez's face, but full on his butt. We often question the number of takes that a photographer did at any given photo shoot for some of these cards. They must have had nothing better for Keith (laughs) Hernandez than this. This is, this barely even qualifies as a Keith Hernandez card. It 100% qualifies as a Keith Hernandez's butt shot. (laughs) Did this photographer take this one picture and say, all right, we got it in one? I mean, I guess they figured that because the lower left-hand corner of every card has a headshot in it, that they just didn't need to have his face in the action shot above. But I think that's a pretty bad assumption. I have heard from other, other fans of the show who wish to remain anonymous that during the 80s, Keith Hernandez was a major heartthrob. Perhaps the Topps Corporation was just recognizing that they needed to show as many of Keith Hernandez's assets as possible to keep fans interested. Whatever sells. I don't know what he's doing. It almost looks like he's watching a foul ball. He's still kind of hunched over after taking a swing. Maybe he was off balance and it has gone into foul territory on the left-hand side. So he's looking over his left shoulder into the sun. It's not a good picture in any way. But then again, the front of his 1988 Topps card wasn't a good shot either. So, Yes, he looked like Groucho Marx. (laughs) A guy who's so photogenic in general, somehow the Topps Corporation found the two worst possible pictures of Keith Hernandez to highlight on their premium set of baseball cards. This picture was just for Elaine and a little (laughs) bit for Jerry as well. Indeed. Well, thank you, Andrew, for sending that. We have no argument with your nomination here. However, listeners, if you have other candidates that you would like to submit for best slash worst butt shot in baseball card history, why don't you email it to us? We're at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Now let's go to this week's card and Rick Honeycutt. And why are we talking about Rick today? We have mentioned research assistant Curtis in the past. He's been a great help over the last few months, helping us out with a lot of our research for some of these episodes. And Curtis took this one on as a labor of love, perhaps because of a familial relation. He shares a last name with Rick. 
And so Curtis suggested that 2024 could be the year of Honeycutt, and we hope for his sake that that is the case. And we're starting off 2024 with the Rick Honeycutt episode. I don't think that they are actually closely related, Curtis and Rick, but maybe somewhere along the the many rungs of that family tree, Curtis and Rick uh, branched off. And so we're starting the year off with Rick and his weird painted cap. Yes, let's go to the front of 641. We will immediately see this card is not like really any others that we've covered so far in the 88 top set. We've we've had some suspicious painted cap type of cards, but this is legendary. This hat is legendary. The hat is enormous. It's the biggest hat I may have ever seen in my life. Yes, that is a huge hat. We should go to Andrew because at Painted Cap, the legendary Twitter account, did cover this card back in 2020. And Andrew pointed out that the tops art techniques that were added here were the 10-gallon cap effect, <laughs> 10 GCE, full jersey brush stroke, button doctoring, creative shadow play. And Andrew also noted that the full jersey brush stroke does not do justice to the ridiculousness of this jersey. He said he believes Vermeer himself would have been proud of how that was developed. But this hat is huge. It's as big as his face, almost, from top to bottom. I think that we do have to give the artist here some credit, because if you do a quick Google search of Rick Honeycutt hat, every picture of him, he has the most ridiculous dad hat you've ever seen. (laughs) Like, he had to have specially made hats that just go straight up. I have one from 2016 when he was coaching the Dodgers. Look how big this hat is. It, All right, it is bigger than his head. Yeah, what is going on? I mean, th- maybe this is... All right, so maybe this was just the style he wore, which was... And so they really had to paint it all to cover up that giant hat. Does he have a giant head? Is it... What is happening in there? He has a lot of hair. And in the 80s, uh... he did have a lot of hair. He still does have a great head of hair. So maybe he needs to hide it, but... I don't know. I've had a lot of hair in the past. I did. It did. It wasn't. I guess that voluminous. Like this is bigger than Oscar Gamble's hat, and he famously had a very voluminous hairdo. Yeah, it's a shocking hat. The shirt, as as Andrew noted, it does look like a painting. It looks like an impressionist painting of what a shirt might look like if it was made of molten metal that was flowing. There's a flow to this that is not present in any mere fabric on earth it is it feels like it's valerian steel or something they maybe tried to make it look like a sweater or silk but this is also not really the color that the oakland athletics used in their gray uniforms the writing across the front is very high up like close to the top button so (laughs) if this was a real picture you would just have (laughs) A totally empty midsection. Yeah, like the letters go all the way up to his sternum and and above. And that top button is so obviously fake. It is not even close. It's not even close to real. They maybe gave him either some some sick traps or they (laughs) made him look like the Michelin man. He looks very puffy up around his shoulders (laughs) and neck region. It's a puffy shirt. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The first one, his traps are just enormous from trying to keep that hat 
balanced on his head correctly. Well, it's a beautiful card in its own way. And let's go to the back of 641, and we have Rick Honeycutt, pitcher, six foot one, 191, left-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the Pirates in the 17th round of 1976, born June 29th, 1954, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with a home in La Habra Heights, California. His full name is Frederick Wayne Honeycutt, and his nickname on baseball reference is Honey. That's not a very clever nickname. <laughs> I imagine now he, he could be the honey badger. And oh, yeah. Based on later incidents in his career, he, he might be the honey cutter. Mm. But we'll get to that a little bit later. That name, Honeycut, we talked about research assistant Curtis, and he sent us some information about the, the last name. The Honeycut family story goes back to England in a place called Honeycote, the name of which is derived from the words honey and cottage. Sounds nice. Like a like a sugar shack. Yeah. The Huncote name first showed up in the Domesday Book, written in 1086. It tells us that a Norman noble named William was in charge of Huncote back then. William Huncote crossed the Atlantic in 1635 on the Assurance and settled in Virginia, making him the first recorded honeycut in America. And William is research assistant Curtis's 11th great-grandfather. Not sure if Rick shares that patrilineage. The last name took on several spelling changes, resulting in several variations on Honeycutt. Other famous Honeycuts, other than Curtis, Olympic fencer Francis Honeycutt, director of NASA's Kennedy Space Center J.F. Honeycutt, founder of the messenger bag company Timbuktu, Rob, also B.J. Honeycutt from MASH, spelled slightly different. And there is an asteroid, 5536 Honeycutt, named for Kent Honeycutt faculty at Indiana University who made contributions to our understanding of accretion disks, cataclysmic variables, and cool stars. As we all know, cool stars like Rick Honeycutt. Rick was born in Chattanooga. Some famous folks associated with Chattanooga. I know we have some wrestling fans out there. Terry Ray Gordy, WWF, WCW, ECW wrestler in the 80s and 90s, who appeared as the executioner and teamed up with Mankind. They were managed by Paul Bearer and feuded with The Undertaker. He also had a son named Terry Jr., who appeared in WWE as Jesse and Slam Master J. Other famous Chattanoogans or Chattanoogans, people associated with the city, Samuel L. Jackson, Gomer Pyle, slash singer of Back Home Again in Indiana, Jim Neighbors, NFL players Terrell Owens and the Minister of Defense, Reggie White. Ted Turner went to boarding school there, and Ursher spent most of his childhood in Chattanooga before heading off to Atlanta. The famous song, The Chattanooga Choo Choo, was made famous by Glenn Miller and his orchestra, and that was featured in the film Sun Valley Serenade. That song received the first ever gold record. Back before those were a industry-given-out award, they were given out by the different record labels, RCA Victor gave out that gold record, the first ever one for Chattanooga Choo Choo sold 1.2 million copies. While Rick was born in Chattanooga, he grew up in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. I'm going to admit that I am bad at Southern geography because when I saw that he grew up in Georgia, I was like, but he was born in Chattanooga. He moved a long distance, but he actually moved about 10 miles because Chattanooga is right on the border with Georgia and Tennessee. 
Rick attended Lakeview High School and played football, baseball, and basketball. After 1973, that school was known as Lakeview Fort Oglethorpe and is referred to as LFO, which is different than those guys who like girls who wear Abercrombie and Fitch. And those were the light, funky ones. They were not named after Lakeview Fort Oglethorpe High School. But Summer Girls sold 1.3 million copies. So take that, Glenn Miller. Actual alums of LFO, American Idol runner-up Lauren Elena and singer Kane Brown. While at Lakeview, Rick was highly regarded as a football player. He got some college interest, but his baseball coach told him, you should stick with baseball. You have a better chance of making it as a pro. And he led his team to back-to-back state titles as a junior and senior. And after his senior year, he was drafted in the 14th round by Baltimore, just a few picks after Len Cicada, but neither of them signed in that draft. While Rick was recruited to play baseball, a couple of his friends were recruited to play football. So he decided to follow along with them to the University of Tennessee. Wild as a mink, sweet as soda pop, Rocky Top Tennessee, as we discussed in the Mike Smithson episode. And Rick Honeycutt would be Mike Smithson's teammate on the Volunteers. His name is still in the Vols record books, some places you would expect. He led the Vols in wins three of the four years he was there. He still holds the 10th place spot in starts, 7th in wins, 10th with a 2.97 ERA, and 2nd with 19 complete games. But he also shows up on the career batting average list, 5th with a 376 average. Rick played first base along with pitching, and as a senior, he led the SEC with a 404 average, 17 doubles, 57 RBIs. He had 10 homers. And while on the mound, he went 8-2 with a 2.88 ERA, tying Mike Smithson for the team lead with eight wins. That's a very good senior season. During that season, he also threw a no-hitter against Georgia and was one walk away from a perfect game. He was named a first-team All-American for that special season and was drafted, but somehow fell all the way down to the 17th round, 12 rounds after Mike Smithson, where the Pirates selected Rick as a first baseman and pitcher, and he was sent to play with the Niagara Falls Pirates. According to the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame, in Rick's first game as a pro, he started and hit cleanup. In his first at bat, he hit a home run. On the year on the mound, he went 5-3 and three with a 2.6 ERA, 1.144 whip in 97 innings. So he was probably too good for that low A level. He also led the team with a 301 average and an 872 OPS. I think that he was a DH at this point, as he appeared in 59 games at the plate. He only pitched 13, and on baseball reference, he's only listed as playing two games at first base and one game at shortstop, and there's other players who kind of fill in those gaps. So I'm not quite sure if they had a DH at this point, but he had a really good season at the plate and on the mound. Next year, he's up in AA Shreveport. He continues to pitch well. In 21 games, he went 10-6 and six with a 2.47 ERA. He only appeared in 39 games at the plate, but hit a respectable 268 in 56 at-bats. And then in late August, Rick was a player to be named later. The Mariners sent Dave Pagan to the Pirates in July, and Rick was the return on that trade. Pagan threw only three innings for the Pirates and was at the end of his career, Pagan was from Snowden, Saskatchewan, a town that had 75 people in it when he was growing up. And in 2021, it had only 15 people. So I'm not sure if he ended up retiring there and is now 6% of the population. Some quick math, Matt. Yep. 
The trade, though, turned out pretty okay for Rick because he was going to Seattle. They're in their first season, and they're awful, which means they need players. So after only a season and a half in the minors, Rick is in the major leagues, and he would spend the next 20 years in MLB. So the back of this card has no fun fact on it, but a lot of stats, and there were 10 more seasons after that. That first season, Rick appeared in 10 games for the Mariners, and they were 3-7 and seven in those games. Rick got a couple of holds late in the year. He had a 4.3 ERA in 29 innings. The next season, the Mariners would lose 100-plus games. Rick had a tough sophomore season, starting 24 games. He missed most of June with an injury, had an ERA close to 5. 1979, he was better. His ERA dropped closer to 4 and was actually better than league average. He was at 11-12 on the season, record-wise impressive for a team with 95 losses. And this Mariners team was consistently terrible. 1980 is no different, but Rick, defying the odds and logic, was 7-1 in the first two months of the season with a 2.59 ERA. The Mariners were actually 500 by May 23rd. They were 20-20, and and Rick had won seven of those games. His next game, he went nine innings, gave up only three runs, and that game ended in a 3-3 tie, as it was called in the 13th inning due to rain. Due to that great start, he was named to the All-Star team for the first time. But after the break, everything fell apart for the Mariners. They lost 103 games that season. In fact, after that tie game, in his next 16 games, Rick went 1-14 with an ERA over 5. It's not that he was that terrible, but even in games where he gave up only one or two runs, the team would lose 2-1 to one or one nothing. He got frustrated and turned to the dark arts. According to some Kansas City Royals players, they noticed some funny business in a September 24th game. The hapless Mariners and Honeycutt somehow beat the future AL champs. Pitcher Paul Splitterhoff said he saw some strange movement on Jay's pitches. And six days later, when Rick faced the Royals again, there was even more murmuring. Jamie Quirk of the Royals said, we knew exactly what he was doing. We just didn't know how he was doing it. We were all on the lookout this time around for some funny business with the ball. Early in the game, George Brett asked the umpire, Bill Kunkel, a former Yankees pitcher, to check the ball, but nothing was out of the ordinary. Later in the game, after Brett drove in Willie Wilson, Wilson asked Kunkel to check again. Kunkel went to the mound and discovered a thumbtack taped to Rick's finger on his glove hand. I'm confused about the logistics of this. If he had the thumbtack taped to his finger and then put his finger into his glove, I guess is how this would work. It seems very strange and like it would be noticed as soon as you took your glove off. So I guess he just wasn't taking his glove off. And for good reason, because at some point in the game, he also forgot that it was on his hand, went to wipe his face, and cut himself with the thumbtack. <laughs> so, that is so dumb. I mean, Rick claimed that he had been struggling. He'd never done this. The fr- this never happens. <laughs> never happened before. He just happened to walk past a bulletin board. He saw a thumbtack, thought, maybe I should try something different. And when you go 1-14 in 16 starts, maybe you should think about making some changes. I don't know if this was the right way to do it. To add a, a punishment beyond that embarrassing injury, he was ejected suspended for 10 games, and fined $250, which 
I didn't do the math on what percentage of his salary that was. Doesn't seem like much, but this is a pretty funny way to cheat, I gotta say. And Mariners fans certainly found it amusing. And some fans who called themselves the Thumbtack Brigade sent a $50 bill to help Rick pay his fine. This is the only time that he was caught, but definitely a memorable moment. A letter in the Seattle Times that was said to be from a Rick Honeycutt said that he had gotten thumbtack endorsements. Apparently that was a fake letter, and the Seattle Times had to look into their op-ed policies after that. I think we'll just stick a pin in that one, and we'll come back to it later. In December, the Mariners made a big trade, 11 players. They sent Rick, Willie Horton, Leon Roberts, Larry Cox, and Mario Mendoza of the Mendoza line to the Rangers for the Polish Prince Richie Zisk, Jerry Don Gleaton, Rick Auerbach, Ken Clay, Brian Allard, and minor leaguer Steve Finch. Zisk was really the only guy who did much for Seattle, but he was in the middle of a big 10-year contract, and he would only play six years of it. He was done after 1983. On the Rangers' side, Honeycutt was the main takeaway. Willie Horton didn't play at all in Texas. Mendoza and Roberts each played about 100 games total for Texas. So even though there's 11 players in this deal, Rick Honeycutt was really the only one who had a significant career ahead of him. And he was pretty good in the strike-shortened season, going 11-6 and with a 3.31 ERA. His whip was only 1.073, and he led the American League with only 1.2 walks per nine innings. He was the Rangers pitcher of the year. He couldn't keep that going in 1982. He was getting hit really hard, started the year 0-7, and then had four straight wins to close out June respectively. Then he went 0-5 with an ERA near 9 in July. During that stretch, opponents hit 402 and had an OPS over 1. It didn't get much better for him as the year progressed. He finished 5-17 with an ERA over 5, and opponents hit 305 on the season against him. So what happened to him in 1983 was pretty unexpected. He was able to cut his home run rate in half, and he was back to his 1981 form. In 25 games, he was 14-8. and eight. He had an ERA of 2.42, a 165 ERA+, plus, which by August was the best in the American League. He made his second All-Star game. He actually got to pitch in this one. The first one, he didn't even appear. He gave up two runs in two innings, but the American League was up big, so those runs didn't really matter. He was also in a contract year, so that gave him some added motivation to perform, and the Rangers didn't think that they could afford to re-sign him, so on August 19th, they decided to get rid of him. The Rangers traded Rick to the Dodgers in exchange for Dave Stewart, $200,000 and a player to be named later, who was Ricky Wright. Dave Stewart didn't do much in Texas. He ended up being traded to Philadelphia in 1984 and would reinvent himself for Oakland in 1986. Ricky Wright didn't do much. Rick Honeycutt was excited to play for a contender. Most of the teams I've played for were 20 or 25 games behind, he said, in August or September. It seems like you just go through the motions, but here he is joining the Dodgers, a frequent contender. But that first year, he was not very good for the Dodgers. 5.77 ERA in 39 innings, and his first playoff experience was pretty rough, too. Tommy Lasorda needed a lefty in the bullpen, so he put Rick in that spot. 
And against Philadelphia, he gave up four earned runs in only 1.2 innings over two relief appearances. Both of those were losses for the Dodgers. At the end of the season, he was the American League ERA champ, despite having not played in that league since August. And when he was traded, he had thrown 174 innings for the American League, just enough to qualify for the ERA title. Second was Mike Boddicker, who was at 2.77 ERA. He also missed some time early in the season, but had enough starts to qualify. And it's an interesting note that when he was traded in August, he had basically wrapped up the ERA title because nobody was going to get lower than 2.42. And he was not going to get any higher because he wasn't going to pitch in the American League. Just an odd note and something we don't see all that often. After that season, Rick had some shoulder pain. He visited the famous Frank Job, who gave him medication to help clear up that pain. And he signed a $3.75 million deal for the next five years. In the offseason, Tommy Lasorda sent him some letters, which is interesting. I guess in the pre-email days, you just sat down and penned a letter. My dearest Rick Honeycutt. <laughs> uh, and Lasorda told him that he wanted to assure him that he had a spot in the rotation Unless somebody takes it away. And Rick said, I'm no dummy. I knew I had to prove myself. Rick also really appreciated Tommy Lasorda and said that Tommy really did look out for him. But that little message told Rick he had to work in going into 1984. According to a 1984 New York Times article, it said that Rick was, quote, sharp again. A fun little (laughs) cutting pun. He came out of spring training confident that after getting advice from Dodgers pitching legends like Sandy Koufax and longtime pitching coach Ron Paranowski. And he said he was amazed to learn things nearly a decade into his pro career that he had never heard before. He'd always been told about different grips, but the Dodgers taught him about using his legs, keeping a solid foundation, and using the rubber properly. And he ended up starting fast and was named NL Player of the Month for April. By late May of 1984, he was 6-1 with a 1.77 ERA. That included a range-shortened one-hitter against the Padres. He fell back to earth and lost a few games, but he ended up with his second-best season as a starter, 10-9, but four of those losses were games he gave up only one or two runs. And 12 starts, he had two or fewer runs in support. So he was making the best he could with what he got from his teammates. He finished the season with a 2.84 ERA, which was sixth in the National League. The Dodgers, however, were just under 500, despite a good pitching staff that included Fernando Valenzuela, rookie Oral Hershiser, Bob Welch, all guys who would win a Cy Young at some point. But the hitting just wasn't there. 1985, that pitching staff would pitch as expected, with those three guys all having outstanding seasons. The other two starters were Rick and Jerry Royce. Rick started 25 games and appeared out of the bullpen in six more, and he was right around league average, a 101 ERA plus, 8-12 record. Again, took some tough losses and no decisions in games where he pitched well. But the Dodgers won 95 games, and Rick again was in the playoffs. With the Dodgers up two games to zero in the NLCS, Rick came in game three in the third inning, got out of a bases-loaded jam, pitched a scoreless fourth, and then the Dodgers would lose that game 4-2. to two. In Game 4, he was credited with zero innings and two earned runs. He came on with runners at first and third and two outs, down 4 to nothing. He allowed three more runs to score without recording an out. Another difficult playoff experience for him. The Dodgers would lose that game 12-2 to two to draw the series even, and the Cardinals would win the NLCS in six games. 
Two earned runs in zero innings is an undefined ERA. This will not be the last playoff experience where Rick had an infinite ERA in certain <laughs> games. 1986 was a down year for the Dodgers in general and for all of the Dodgers starters. Welch, Valenzuela, and Hirschheiser all fell back to around league average ERA+. plus. They had all been over 140 in 1985. Rick Honeycutt's now 32 years old and looked like an average back-of-the-rotation option. He was 11-9 and with a 105 ERA+. Plus. Not bad, but up and down. In 1987, he wasn't terrible, but with offense up league-wide, it looks a lot worse. His ERA jumped a whole point from 3.32 to 4.59 in 27 games for the Dodgers. Through his first nine starts... His record was only 2-4, and four, but he had a 1.82 ERA, including a shutout. But then, you know, but a good streak is always followed by a bad streak. May 18th through the end of August, in 21 games, his ERA was closer to 6, and he was 0-11. And, and then on August 29th, he was traded by the Dodgers to the A's in exchange for a player to be named later. That player would be former two-time number one overall pick Tim Belcher. Rick's season ended inauspiciously for the A's. He made a few starts and had an ERA over five. The A's were 500, but were on the rise. But at this point, Rick is entering the second stage of his career. And after 1987, he never started another game. He ends up as the setup man for Dennis Eckersley. The A's turn former starter Eck into a one-inning reliever, turn former starter Rick Honeycutt into a left-handed setup man. And he was really good in that role. In 1988, the A's made a huge step forward, winning 104 games. Rick was good in his new role in 55 games. He got seven saves, had a 110 ERA plus, and 18 holds. And he was much more successful in the playoffs for Oakland in 1988 than in his previous stints. In three appearances in the ALCS, he gave up zero earned runs over two innings. And the A's would ultimately lose the World Series, but Rick was perfect in the 3.1 innings he pitched over three games, earning a win in Game 3 when he held the game tied 1-1, to allowing Mark McGuire to hit a walk-off home run in the ninth. The A's would repeat as AL West champs in 89 and 90, and over those two seasons, Rick was one of the best lefty relievers in baseball. There were 32 lefty relievers who threw more than 75 games combined in 1989 and 90. Rick had the second best ERA plus after Randy Myers, a 148 ERA plus over those two seasons. Combined, he pitched 127 games, had 19 saves, 49 holds, a combined whip of 1.071. Opponents hit 207 and 204 against him in those two seasons, and he served as a great one-two punch with Ack, who saved 81 games in those two AL West champ seasons. Rick pitched in the playoffs and World Series both seasons, 1989-1990. In the 1989 ALCS, games two and three, he gave up runs without recording an out. So again, infinite, undefined, break your calculator ERAs. In game four, he got some outs before giving up three runs, lowering it to an ERA of 32.4. Not great. But thankfully for him, the A's beat the Blue Jays in five games. And in the World Series, Rick pitched scoreless innings in game two and three, gave up a couple runs in game four, but the A's had a cushion and won nine to six to secure the sweep, and Rick won a World Series ring. The A's made it back to the playoffs in 1990, and Rick was very good in the ALCS against Boston, 
earning two holds and one save. He only pitched in one game of the World Series against the Reds. He came in with men on first and third with one out in game two. The A's are up four to three. Rick Forst, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good Glenn Braggs to ground out. And Mike Gallego was unable to turn a double play and a run scored. So this is a, a little bit unlucky. It was a difficult play for Gallego. While Rick was not charged with an earned run, he was charged with a blown save because he did allow that run to score. He was able to get out of the inning and through the ninth inning, tied 4-4. Four to four. The Reds would ultimately win that game in the 10th inning and shock the world, sweeping the A's in four games. At this point, Rick was 36 years old and he signed an extension, but then a shoulder injury in spring training kept him out for part of the beginning of the season. He made it back in to pitch 43 games, but the A's were around 500. They were back in form in 1992, and Rick was pretty good, but more limited, more of a lefty specialist, pitching only 39 innings over 54 games. So he's down to more of a loogie role, just pitching to one player at a time. He pitched well in the playoffs again, but this time in two losses to Toronto. 93, he's still very effective, but the A's were at the end of that great run, losing 90-plus games, and Rick was a free agent after the season was over. His old team, well, one of his few old teams, the Rangers, signed the 39-year-old to a one-year deal, and he had a, a really rough year. Opponents slashed 349, 410, 557. He had a 720 ERA in 42 games. He might have been one of the few people who was thankful for the season to end early. Most fans were not happy with the strike, but Rick Honeycutt probably saw it as a, a reprieve. He re-signed with Oakland in 1995, going into his age 41 season, and he was great. 44 innings, he had 12 holds and a 2.42 ERA. That's a 179 ERA plus. And in late September, the Yankees are in a pinch. They need a left-handed reliever. And they purchased Rick for $50,000. This deal happened so late, though, that it missed the deadline to make him eligible for the postseason roster. But it didn't matter. The Yankees needed someone those last two weeks of the season. And so kind of a strange deal. He appeared in one total inning over three games. But I guess that was good enough for the Yankees. And it's good for Immaculate Grid as well. <laughs> good point. After the season, the Cardinals acquired Honeycutt for cash considerations. Their GM said he's just the type of guy who always wants the ball and he thrives on competition. And I guess so because he's 42 years old at that point and still playing. But he was great, again, posting a 148 ERA plus in 61 games, setting up the Cardinals' closer, a guy named Dennis Eckersley. They won the NL Central with multiple relievers over the age of 40, as well as youngster 38-year-old Tony Fossis. Rick was the oldest player in the league at 1996, but he's back in the playoffs. And he pitched a lot. Three games of the NLDS, earning a win in one of those games as the Cardinals beat the Padres. In the NLCS, the Cardinals and Atlanta went to seven games, and Rick was called on in five of them. In games two, three, and four, he didn't allow a hit or a run. The Cardinals won all three of those games, and they were up three games to one. But in Game 5 and Game 7, Rick gave up two runs apiece, but those were blowout wins for Atlanta. And so Rick came into the game already down in both of those games, and those losses sent the Braves to the World Series. The Cardinals had a team option to bring Rick back in 1997 for $500,000, and they exercised it to keep him around. 
Rick had earned $350,000 as his base salary in 1996 and $250,000 in performance bonuses, and now gets another half a mil just to get signed for 1997 at, at age 43. He's the oldest player in the major leagues, but due to an elbow injury, he only appeared in two games, so he decided to retire. And closing the book on Rick Honeycutt, 21 seasons in the major leagues for six different teams. A record of 109 wins and 143 losses. He pitched in 2,160 innings, started 268 games, and made 529 additional appearances as a reliever. Honeycutt is in the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame, was the ERA champ for the American League in 1983, two-time All-Star, and one World Series ring. How about in retirement? Rick and his wife, Debbie, married in the 70s, and they've been married ever since. And Rick had a deal with Debbie that when he stepped away from the game, he would stay away from it for a little while, at least until their son, Ricky, graduated from high school. Ricky was their younger son. Their older daughter, Holly, at this point was in college. She went on to become a physical therapist. But as soon as Rick got out of baseball, teams were calling him. His manager with the A's and the Cardinals, Tony La Russa, had talked to him about coaching. His pitching coach, Dave Duncan, had said, you need to get back in the game. But Rick stuck to his word, and he watched Ricky graduate. He helped coach his son's teams, and Ricky went on to play golf at the University of Tennessee. Shortly after he graduated high school, Tommy Lasorda called Rick and said, you should get back into baseball. And so Rick joins the Dodgers as a consultant, coaching minor league players. He then becomes the minor league pitching coordinator for Los Angeles from 2002 to 2005. And then in 2006, he's named the Dodgers pitching coach. And he held on to that role until 2019 when he stepped down. That year, Rick had a spinal surgery. It was not a comfortable situation for him in 2019. So he decided that after that season, he was going to step down. He stuck around, though, through multiple managers. And oftentimes, he was the only coach who was kept on by the Dodgers. So he was there through Grady Little, Joe Torre, Don Mattingly, and into Dave Roberts' tenure, he tied Ron Paranowski, his old pitching coach, for the longest pitching coach tenure in Dodger history. And in his 14 years there, the Dodgers ranked in the top 10 in ERA 13 times. And 10 of those times, they were in the top five. Rick and his wife, Debbie, also helped found Heartland Ranch, which is a 100-acre facility that includes a fishing pond, hiking, horseback riding, and a covered horse arena, along with a 42-stall horse barn. And Heartland Ranch helps youth who deal with developmental, physical, and emotional disabilities, such as cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, spina bifida, autism, and Down syndrome. And the ranch also provides therapeutic riding, camps, and programs for low-income and high-risk children. We started this episode looking at a giant painted cap and a very creatively painted jersey. We said allegedly he played for the A's. He won a World Series ring with the A's. Now that we've looked at this 21-year career, what do we think? I didn't know a lot about Rick Honeycutt. I had heard about the thumbtack, because that's just a famous <laughs> tale of shenanigans. But that's a 21-year career, and he did everything, and still is. He's still involved with the Dodgers. I was looking up—I can't remember how I came across this. You know, you just come across articles about John Olerud. It just happens <laughs> when you're— working on this podcast. There's an article about John Olerud where that was prior to his MLB career suggesting that Olerud could be the next Babe Ruth because he was a great hitter and pitcher in college. 
And it raised some other examples saying, these guys did both, but it never really panned out and they had to pick one or the other. And Rick's name was on that list. And it's a fun reminder that if Rick had stuck to it, we we talk about a lot of guys who don't hit 300 at A-ball. And Rick was a pretty good hitter and a very good pitcher. <laughs> if he had stuck to the other, he could have maybe been a triple-A first baseman or something like that. I think if he had put his mind to it, maybe he could have been a pro as a as a first baseman. But as it happened, he ended up with two phases of his career, and it's a unique one. Among pitchers who pitched more than 50% of their games in relief, only six guys appeared in more than 500 games and had more than 250 starts. Uh, the six guys on that list, in order of most games pitched, Dennis Eckersley, Rick Honeycutt, Terry Mulholland, Greg Swindell, Wilbur Wood, and Pedro Ramos. And Rick never quite reached the heights of success that some of those guys did on either side. He wasn't an all-star closer because he's a setup man. You don't quite get the recognition. He was an all-star starter. Part of that was because he pitched for the Mariners and they just needed to send somebody. And then that one outstanding season. But as a starter, he was 90 and 121 from 1977 to 1987 with an exactly 100 ERA+. As a reliever, however, he pitched in 488 games from 1988 to 1997. Only 14 lefty relievers pitched in 400-plus games, and his 121 ERA plus was fifth among those lefties. So he was a very effective lefty reliever and really a smart pitcher. And so, of course, that leads into a long coaching career when you have a smart guy who's gotten good coaching throughout his career. And Rick really took pride in in bringing that old Dodger pitching philosophy back. That coaching style that Sandy Koufax and Ron Paranowski passed to him, both the physical side of it, but also the wisdom and the being smarter if you're not better. Rick, by the time he's 40, is not necessarily the most physically gifted athlete, but at this point he's got some wisdom on his side. And he could teach that to young pitchers. He started for bad teams. He got caught cheating. He's a starter and a reliever for good teams. He pitched in multiple World Series and an All-Star game. He can talk to any pitcher. He did it all. He can even think from the mind of a pretty good hitter, a 300 hitter at one point. Specifically, Clayton Kershaw praised Rick. Clayton Kershaw known for being a fiery individual, not being happy when he loses. He said, I get upset when I don't pitch well, which that's an understatement. And he just knows what to say. He's a good calming presence. In 2019, Rick stepped away from the game. Sort of. He stayed on as a special assistant for the Dodgers. And he helped lay the groundwork that was the foundation for the Dodgers' 2020 World Series victory. He was invited to watch the game in a box, watching the final out with his old manager, Tommy Lasorda. And he was able to watch his players celebrate and have that joy that he felt in 1989. And Rick is a guy who we like to talk about because he's that connection back to history, and to the present. And so he gives us a chance to talk about Sandy Koufax and Clayton Kershaw in the same episode, and he's a guy who can connect those two legends from the past and, and to today. And he had a, a really great career, and also a therapeutic horse farm. <laughs> thank you very much, David, for the story, and thank you, Curtis, too, for the deep research into the Honeycutt family tree. We appreciate that very much. And thank you to you at home. If you're sporting a 10-gallon hat, we'd love to see a picture of it. 
You can find us on socials at 1988 Tops Podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.